1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Joshua.
0: God
1: God had proven his power and his mercy time and time again. He had brought the Israelites out of their enslavement in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness of their wanderings and disobedience. They were finally in the land, God giving them the victory over the inhabitants of Canaan. They conquered the walled city of Jericho, burned down the city of Ai, and had slain five of the Amorite kings that had banded together to fight against Israel. God was the one that fought for them. The cities of Canaan towards the north decided to band together under the leading of Jabin, king of Hazor. All the armies gathered and strategically positioned themselves to fight against Israel. This would be Israel's biggest and toughest battle yet. But God always fights for his people. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 11, verse 6. Please excuse the sound quality of this message. There were some technical difficulties when this message was first given.
0: It would be quite easy at this point, if you were an Israeli, to be tempted to say, you know what, I'm satisfied with the Central Plateau and the South. <laughs> Why don't we just leave these guys be? we got plenty of gland for us. In other words, to not obey God completely. I don't know if anybody thought that, but I do know this. At the very least, Joshua was frightened when he got wind of everything because God, in verse 6, says to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. The word afraid means to be in a feeling of great distress and concern. There are many circumstances that can make us feel great distress or concern. And you know what? Feeling afraid or concerned because you get bad news isn't sin. I think that's just being human. (laughs) When you hear bad news, you go, what? You know, what are we going to do about that? And that's your first thought. That's just kind of the way we react normally as human beings. That's not sin. Staying afraid or worried or concerned Instead of choosing to remember God's promises and God's past faithfulness is where we do cross the line into sin. That first initial reaction of, oh, that's normal. That's what Joshua experienced here. But when the Lord has given us precious promises and we have the example of his past faithfulness and we decide to ignore that to stay afraid or concerned, that's when we cross the line into sinful fear. That means you and I must choose to remember what's more real than our problems. You might be thinking, Pastor Will, my problem is incredibly real. <laughs> I'm not belittling that. I'm not denying that. There are things you know, I face in the course of my life at times where I thought, God, this is, this is that mountain that needs to be removed and I see no way to tell it to jump into the sea. I see no way to move it. I mean, I get that. I've been there. But the truth is, whatever problem we face, we honestly don't even know how bad it is. Even if it's really bad, we don't know the extent of how bad it really is because we don't have full knowledge. So what's more real then than our understanding of our pro- the problem we face? Well, it has to be the one who gives us promises who does have all knowledge, Right? Do you understand that? So like if he has all knowledge and he says, yeah, but I'll never leave you forsake you. Yeah, I'll supply all your needs to my riches and glory. Yes, yeah, I will be with you always, even at the end of the age. If that's true, which it is, and he has all knowledge and he can make those statements having all knowledge, then his promises and his past faithfulness, which has already happened, are indeed more real than the very worst problem I could face that is something we have to choose to believe by faith. <laughs> and it really is where our the rubber meets the road is, as as it's said. It really is where our faith is either real or it's not. Now, don't be discouraged if you encounter a problem and all of a sudden you go my faith is not very strong or my faith isn't very real. I don't know if that's a correct assessment. There've been many times in my life when I faced a problem and I thought I'm not dealing well with this. My faith must be very weak or my faith must be non-existent. That's not necessarily true. It's like Israel. I mean, Joshua had faith to say, God, I'm asking you for the sun to stand still. So I mean, it's not a man who didn't have any faith, but he'd never been this way before. He hadn't learned to trust God through this yet. So, when you encounter something like that, don't look at it and let the enemy beat you up and say, You don't have any faith. You don't trust God at all. No, that's not it. You just haven't learned to trust God with this yet. And that's part of what God's trying to teach you, is to bring you into a deeper, if not level of trust, a new experience at least of trust in Him. And that's not such a bad thing, even though the problem is not fun. That's not such a bad thing. Or at least that's what I'm trying to learn. Now, God. Why does he tell them not to be afraid because of them? Verse six, for tomorrow, I love the Lord says, about this time, right about this time, you know, maybe give or take a few minutes. About this time, I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Now, God's promise of victory here is pretty, pretty drastic. I will deliver them, not some slain, all slain before you this time tomorrow. This time tomorrow, you won't, you won't have any enemies left from this army. They'll all be dead. That's hard to believe. Joshua chased down, and the Israeli armies chased down all the people from the southern confederacy, but some of them got back to their hometowns, and then Israel had to lay siege to those towns. Surely Joshua's thinking, Lord, even if we whoop these guys, I mean, it's just going to be a whole other bunch of sieges again. The Lord goes, no, 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 not this time. We'll see later in the chapter, the Lord says, no, I've drawn them out. I've brought them to this place to make this way more simple this time. This time, no one's escaping. This will be the last major battle you fight for the land. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? And yet God's promise of victory here is more real than the problem this alliance poses. It is. Because Joshua doesn't have all the information. We'll get to the special information later in the chapter. Now again, this isn't just a pep talk here. This is a reminder. You trust me for victory, Joshua. You trust me for victory. I'm the one who gives you the victory. You are outnumbered. They have the better ground. They are ready for whatever you bring. And guess what? They've got chariots. But I'm the one that gives you the victory. So you trust me that I'm in control of this situation and that I am going to take care of this army to a man. You won't face a single soldier that you face in this day ever again. And because of that, because of that, I don't want you confiscating their chariots. He says to him, I want you to huff. Or the word there, huff, it means to hamstring. You're going to hamstring their horses, basically rendering them useless in war. And you're going to burn their chariots with fire. This command wasn't a new command from the Lord, nor was it ever rescinded in Israel. Early on, God told him, he said, I don't want you ever trusting in a cavalry. Israel was never to have a cavalry. They were never to have something that would be that kind of deterrent that other enemies would look out and go, oh, we don't want to mess with them. They've got a strong cavalry. They were always to have, from a technological viewpoint, an inferior army to their enemies. Why? Because they were always to trust the Lord for the victory. Now, where Solomon went wrong, one of many areas he went wrong, is he broke that rule and he built a strong cavalry. In fact, if you go to Hazor, you'll see in the ruins, it became, it was like an imperial city. It would house, have stable houses for the imperial cavalry. When we went to Megiddo at Israel, you, and you'll see there, Solomon did the same exact thing there. He built the stables there for the official cavalry because he wanted to have a strong military. Israel was never to do that though. David spoke of where Israel's trust was to be in Psalm chapter 20 when he said this. David, he says in Psalm 20 verse one, the Lord hear you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend you, send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. That's how it's supposed to be. May the Lord do this. Remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offerings. May he grant you according to your own heart and fulfill all your counsel. We will rejoice in your salvation And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all your petitions. And now know I that the Lord saves his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, those who trust in their horses and chariots. But We are risen and stand upright. So save Lord, let the King hear. Us when we call. See, David, when when he became king, he learned a very important lesson. He wasn't really the king. (laughs) The Lord was the king, and the Lord would defend his people way better than David ever could. Did that mean David didn't have to go out and fight? No, that's not the point. We still have to go out and fight. But it's the Lord who gains the victory. We trust that He's in control. You know, and I ask you tonight, you know, before we get into this battle, does that describe your trust in the Lord? Or do you Trust in these other things to get you through? Do you trust in the Lord or are you resting in your chariots? Well, verse 7 that was all Joshua needed. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Merom. And I love this. Suddenly, and they fell upon them. It was a long march north from uh, Gilgal to Merom, but Israel wasted no time in attacking the moment they got there. It says they attacked suddenly and fell on them. The word suddenly means all at once. This was no strategy. There was no, hey, how do we tackle the high ground? It means in an instant, all at once. It also has the idea of unexpectedly. There was no special strategy for the wadi, no special strategy for the high ground, no special strategy for the chariots. They just rushed at them. They fell upon them. Israel simply attacked with all they had, and it completely caught the Canaanites off guard. Completely. Why would an inferior force charge a fortified position directly? I heard someone say once, the enemy can't know what we're doing and figure out if we don't know what we're doing don't know if that's the best plan, but in this instance, it was God's plan. They didn't know what to do. They didn't react. They just see these guys charging at them. It doesn't look like there's any strategy. It doesn't look like, and they are frozen to inaction. And so the high ground doesn't help them that much. Chariots don't help them that much because once you get into the high ground, you can't use the chariots. Chariots are supposed to keep them from getting there. And once Israel got across the wadi, it no longer provided the adequate defense that a body of water can they caught the Canaanites totally off guard because despite all their planning, the Canaanites were never in control of anything. The Lord was, verse eight. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel who smote them and chased them unto great Sidon and unto Misrephoth, Maim and unto the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they smote them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He huffed their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. That word delivered, it means to give to someone or to present to someone. You ever heard, oh, he gifted it to him on a silver platter. That's exactly what the Lord did here. The southern campaign was long. Lots of sieges. We get, we get a list of every city name by name that's conquered and how it was conquered. Here, none of that. The Lord literally gifted the entire army, the entire victory to Israel. And it says that they smote them. They defeated them until they left none of them remaining. The wadi didn't matter. The high ground didn't matter. The chariots didn't matter. Being outnumbered didn't matter because God gifted the victory to Israel. And when God gifts you the victory, there is no way you can lose. All you have to do is receive it by faith. And that's what Israel did. Some of these soldiers fled northwest. Greater Sidon is Phoenician city in the northwest. The same thing with Misrephoth, Maim. It's a little bit south of Sidon, but these are Phoenician cities to the northwest. Others fled to the northeast to Mount Hermon, but none escaped. This was not just an Israeli invading armory conquering a sitting Canaanite people. This was God's judgment upon individuals who stubbornly refused to repent. I mean, that's the only way you can account for the fact that every single person, every single soldier died in this battle. That never happens. This was God's judgment on individuals who stubbornly refused to repent. Now, God told him that. He said, "I don't leave anyone alive. Slay them all. Joshua obeyed that command. Now he needs to obey God's second command to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots with fire. And that's exactly what Joshua does in verse 9. Obedience is so crucial to experiencing Christ's victory. Now, when I bring that up, people hear that and they go, that's it, Pastor, Ro, well, that's why I don't ever experience victory. I, I still disobey at times. I didn't say perfection. <laughs> I said obedience. Perfection, that would be legalism. But isn't that obedience? Isn't that doing doing what God says all the time? That's obedience, right? What is obedience biblically? What is obedience? I love one of the things that the New Testament says. It's a phrase that's used a couple times, and it'll say, "And they obeyed the gospel." We don't use that phrase anymore today. The reformers used it a lot, but we don't use that phrase anymore today. Like I don't when I give an altar call, I don't say, "Now today you need to." You need to obey God's command to receive the gospel. we don't do that. We call people to get saved, you know, to repent of their sins and receive Christ. But what we see in the book of Acts, a lot of times it mentions, or in Paul's letters, it mentions that, yeah, when you first obeyed the gospel, obedience, part of it is receiving God's gracious gifts by faith. That's part of being an obedient Christian. Part of what we miss out on God's blessing is because God wants to do good things for us. And we go, oh, I'm not worthy, God. I, you know, I, I, God could never want to bless me like that because I still fail. Okay, welcome to humanity. <laughs> the Bible says he knows our frame that we're just dust. And he pities us like a father pities his child. Listen, there are times when my kid, if he keeps doing something he shouldn't be doing over and over again, there's discipline, you know, or if it's something where he just keeps making poor choices, where I do come alongside and go, I love you, but this is part of why you need to make better decisions. But like when my kid comes crying to me the first time or the second time, my first reaction isn't to go, get out of here, man. If you just make better decisions, you wouldn't go through this. And a lot of times you see it in their eyes. They know they made a bad decision and they're heartbroken. And what do you do? You wrap your arms around them. You wrap your arms around them. That's what the Lord does with us. No, He doesn't excuse our sin. But part of obedience is receiving God's gracious gifts by faith. The other part, of course, is denying ourselves and following God's orders. But they both are important. And Israel does both here. God delivered the battle to them. All they had to do was receive it by faith. And then He gave them specific orders. They needed to obey them and follow them. And they did. And so because of that obedience, they experienced the full extent of the victory God wanted to give to them. Now I ask you, do you receive God's gifts by faith or do you try to earn them? Do you deny yourself and follow God's orders or do you ignore him and do your own thing? The answers to not just one of those questions, but both of those questions will often explain why we're living in victory or defeat. Now, the battle's won, but the task isn't finished. Soldiers aren't the only stubborn people who haven't repented. So verse 10, and Joshua, at that time, after every soldier had been defeated, he turned back and he took Hazor, he captured it, and he smote the king thereof with the sword. Don't you like Mr. Jabin here? We need to all fight, you out there. I'm going to stay in my nice city. But Joshua killed the king with the sword, for Hazor before time was the head of all these kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe. And he burnt Hazor with fire. Now the conquest of the north would be very easy compared to the sieges in the south because no one had any able-bodied soldiers left. Now you would think at that point in time, you might run up the white flag, right? Like at that point in time, you don't have an army left. And Israel's coming. You would think at that point in time, you might want to run up the white flag and say, could we talk? Could we talk? But they don't. When we read about the killing of every soul in some of these cities, and we think, God, I never see a God of grace and mercy doing that. <sighs> what else is God supposed to do? How else is he supposed to get their attention? What else? What other more chances are they supposed to get? They don't repent. Israel used most of the conquered cities as their own cities when the land was later distributed to the tribes. But it mentions here that Hazor was the head of all those kingdoms. It had led the way in this defiance against God. And so perhaps other cities would see the complete destruction and repent. Unfortunately, they don't. Now, the archaeologists, when they did their excavations, they have confirmed Hazor's complete destruction during this time period. It would not be rebuilt again until King Solomon did so many centuries later. And the excavation of Hazor serves as a modern example of what happens when you defy God. You don't just lose that battle. You lose everything. You lose everything. Verse 12, what about the other cities? Do they repent? Nope. And all the cities of those kings and all the kings of them did Joshua take, smote them with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed them as and the servant of the Lord commanded. But as for the cities that stood still in their strength, the uh, cities that were high upon mounds with adequate defensive systems, those would be good for Israel to move into. Those they did not burn. Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only. That did Joshua burn. Again, thus God's promises through Moses come true. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 12, he says, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant. You know, all these things that you you had nothing to do with. And that's exactly what Israel would do and they would move into these conquered cities after they would wipe out everyone in them. In verse 14, Israel also took plunder from these cities, not from Hazor, but from these they did. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves. But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, neither left they any to breathe. As the Lord commanded Moses his servant. so did Moses command Joshua. And so did Joshua. He left nothing undone. The word there means he didn't turn aside or change direction in any way from all the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua stayed the course like Moses had before him. No compromises, none of his own ideas. Reminds me of Paul when at the end he said, I have fought a good fight. I've run the race. I've finished my course, right? I've kept the faith. Let's have that be our testimony too, amen? You have to remember, Israel's not just a conquering army. They were God's instrument of judgment. And God gave opportunity after opportunity to these people to repent. Of all the Canaanites, this northern group had seen all that God had already done. But much like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts until it was too late. Guys, God is indeed very merciful. He's wonderfully patient. But God will not strive with us forever. He said in Noah's day, he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Eventually, he must judge. And if Israel would refuse to be God's instrument of judgment, if they were to say, but God, you know, maybe the people can change or maybe this or maybe that. If they would decide to not be God's instrument of judgment, that would make them as equally prideful and stubborn as the Canaanites. And it would then bring God's judgment upon them. So Joshua did not turn aside. He didn't change direction at all. No compromises, none of his own ideas. He stayed the course, even though it must have been a brutal task to wipe out everyone who wouldn't repent. When you get to verse 16, it starts to now sum up basically all that Joshua had done. But there's a section in here that I want to spend some time on, so we're going to quit here. And so, God willing, next Sunday, we'll finish this chapter, we'll do the next chapter and maybe even chapter 13, because it moves pretty quick. From this point on in Joshua, things start to move pretty quickly. So read the end of the chapter, chapter 12, chapter 13, for next week, and God willing, we'll cover that next Sunday, if the Lord tarries. Amen? Amen. All right, let's all stand. Oh, Lord, I couldn't imagine what it would be like. I can't imagine, Lord, what it's like to be, what it would have been like to have been an Israeli soldier in that time, and to be Joshua, to make the pronouncement to wipe out everybody in the city. Lord, it's a a horrible thought. But Lord, we know that it's not the last time something like that will happen. We know that your wrath will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world in the future as well. And so, Lord, while there's still time to repent, our decision, Lord, is we want to be faithful witnesses to warn people of the wrath to come, that they might have a a clear opportunity, a clear understanding of who you are, how good you are, Lord, and how horrible sin is. That like these Canaanites who had been given time and opportunity and opportunity to repent, we would give those in our sphere of influence the best opportunity to repent and know you. So God, give us love and compassion for the lost. Give us boldness to share our faith. And Lord, help us to walk In light of the fact that you're in control, to be obedient to you, not just in following your commands, but also in receiving your gifts by faith. The good things you want to do for us by faith, Lord. We thank you that you're in control and we trust you for the victory in Jesus name. Amen.
1: Israel faced the largest and most formidable army they had ever faced. The odds were stacked against them. In human understanding, this would spell the certain end for the nation. But God is the God of the impossible. He fights for his people. He has everything under his control. We need not worry about how things will work out. We need only to obey his word to us, trust it, and live it out. God is for us. Who can be against us? If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on itunes and google play thank you for joining us today we will see you next time as we continue to learn walk and live in the word